So we've had a somewhat full day already. And uh, let's just sit together peacefully as the light is going down on this summer evening for a minute or two. Good evening. Again, my name is Mushim, and I've gotten the chance to know some of you a little better today and, and yesterday, so that's been, that's been really wonderful. I just have to tell you, you are an exceptionally fine-looking group of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are. You're an exceptionally fine-looking group of people. Very beautiful. So I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to take a moment and uh, just take your hand, whichever hand, and place it on your heart. And breathing in and breathing out. See if you can just feel your heart for a moment. So what you're feeling 
is the heartbeat of a Buddha to be. You're actually touching the heart of a Buddha to be because each of you contains the nature of awakening within you. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to transcend to some other plane of existence. Right now, you're actually touching the heart of a Buddha-to-be. And you have the capacity to do that at any moment. So that's my life and my faith. And that's how I've practiced, and that's how I've been taught. And the name of this talk, continuing with our study of the Eightfold Path, which, as we remember, is the fourth noble truth that the uh, historical Buddha taught over and over for 45 years, hoping that someone would get it. <laughs> Lucky for us, it's come down to us, so we can try our best. So the name of this talk is Universal Heartbeat. Universal Heartbeat, applying skillful effort and right diligence to our practice. So that's not two things, that's one thing. All of these uh, terms and concepts come to us from 2,500 years ago. So obviously we're in a different culture, different language. we have Twitter, the different time. And uh, so uh, that's why sometimes it's helpful to have a Dharma talk and many Dharma talks because different teachers have different perspectives. People from different lineages are going to have different takes on things. So what we might call right effort or skillful effort or right diligence are one aspect of this eightfold path, this noble Eightfold Path, which was one of the Buddha's teachings of how we can achieve liberation, how we can live a good life amidst all of our difficult circumstances. And contained in everyone in this room tonight, we know we are actually very representative of what's happening all over the world. There are people who themselves and their families, their friends, dealing with very severe illnesses, with job loss, with aging, everyone's dealing with that. And some people who've had recent deaths among their close circle. Of course, whether we know it or not, there have been many recent deaths and births in our close circle. As I've been walking in and out of the meditation hall, and today when I got on my mat, uh, I saw a little moth that had died on my cushion. And I saw a little fly that had died on the floor. So even as we're sitting here and having our retreat, the life forms all over this land that we're on That which may have been born yesterday may have passed away today. 
that which was not born yesterday may now be in existence, living out its life. And you multiply that by thousands and thousands and maybe millions of lives just on this piece of land. And we can see how strong and rich life itself is. So in order to um, in order to achieve the fruits of our practice, we do need to make effort. And to just live our lives, we need to make effort. Having raised a kid and trying to pass on life skills, and I know there are many teachers in this room, of course you know how much effort it is to d teach children things that we might even take for granted, like how to get a BART ticket, that's the rapid transit train for those of you who aren't from that, this area, how to ride on the bus by yourself, how much you tip if you eat a sandwich in a restaurant, um, how to fill in your social security number online. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There's a lot of effort that's needed to live our human lives. And so the question becomes, how can we use what time and energy we have wisely? How can we use it wisely to really achieve our goals so that we feel satisfied? Not that everything's going to go smoothly. Sometimes there are going to be big mistakes and, and giant things that happen to us that are really beyond our control, which can have a very negative effect but so that overall, and hopefully big things that happen to us that have a very positive effect, so that overall, we know we've done our best effort. We're developing in the way that leads us to more and more contact with that heart of the Buddha that beats in the chest of every one of us. So let's look at our kind of little world here our world of this retreat community, because that's what's happening now. I feel such gratitude for everyone's work and practice. And some of you I see doing your yogi jobs, I'm sure many I don't see. Um, I see you practicing, sitting. I see you walking very beautifully on the land, beautiful walking meditation practice going on, very inspiring to me. I speak with the retreat managers, and they're scurrying about behind the scenes to do everything they can to make this retreat work well, as are the kitchen staff and um, the house cleaners, the administrators are administrating, and everything here, you know, has its function, is doing its job. We see those... Um, uh, I guess, you know, there are lizards out there. They kind of do those push-ups. <laughs> they do those push-ups. So they're doing their function. That's their job. That's their life force. That's their job. And uh, the wild turkeys are walking in that kind of stately manner. They're doing their job. The trees are growing. The planet is turning. Someone's taking out the garbage. 
how wonderful that we can be together in community that is simply here to support our practice. It is simply here to support our spiritual growth and our awakening. So each one of you is doing that vital function. There is no one here who is less important than anyone else. Teachers sit up front and teach because that's our function. The Buddha figures sit on the altar because it's their function. And the bell sounds when invited. That's its function. All of this, in a certain way, requires effort. And in another way, you see how clearly it is all natural functioning. It is all completely natural. Invisible, sometimes looking effortless. And as the practice deepens and you become more and more sensitive, we'll find that the community naturally becomes very sensitive to one another and a natural harmony begins to develop. So that some people might say, well, noble silence sounds so hard. How can I get to know people? The answer is, we can get to know one another so deeply without words. It's very common for people to fall in love during retreats, by the way. Because our inner beauty comes out. It comes out. In a new and a different way. Because after all, we're not just, you know, kind of sitting around in silence. We're working together. We're eating together. We're doing various tasks together. When we go into the group interviews, we're listening to one another. All of that is very important practice. So turning our attention to skillful or right effort, sometimes called right diligence, diligent effort. It's one aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, as Bhante was instructing us last night, along with skillful view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, mindfulness, and concentration. So we don't need to worry about sort of nailing everything down if we're not familiar with the Eightfold Path, because it is a wheel, it is a mandala, and we can enter into the various aspects of the path through one door, through another door. Each contains all of the others. Each contains all of the others. And someone can enter into that Dharma wheel through saying, I'd like to have a job that reflects my deepest values to really help the environment or the world or other people and myself, and to do it in a way that minimizes harm. Someone else might have another way in. For one person, their way of coming to the Dharma might be through reading a book. For another person, it might be through sustaining some kind of terrible loss in which 
they come to a point in their lives where they really just don't know what to do. They're in such terrible pain. And so they'll go and sit, which causes them even more terrible pain. Mm -hmm. But the pain in their heart begins to be healed as they hear these teachings and do these practices. So it's not linear. So visualize this wheel of Dharma, which as Bhante was saying, used to be up on the altar. This wheel of Dharma, this eight-spoked wheel, as a mandala. And we can also see it as a wheel, like a wheel on a car. In fact, I see it kind of as a tire. And so we're developing our practice towards wholeness and balance. So visualize that it's like this, I see it as this big all-terrain tire. And you know, then it has a kind of a matching one. And it's on our, our vehicle, which is our journey, our vehicle of practice, our vehicle of adventure in our life. And this wheel of Dharma, with its companion wheel of Dharma, will enable us to travel on even the bumpiest, the wildest, off-road areas of our lives. <laughs> it is the all-terrain wheel of Dharma. It is. It is the all-terrain wheel of Dharma. And so, uh, so we're equipped. And in our vehicle, we're riding up high with big windows because we also have skillful view, right view, big view, the big picture. That's pretty good, right? We can see this landscape around us. We can see this terrain. Looks pretty wild and adventurous. Might be frightening, might be exciting, might be kind of boring at the moment. But we've got this big view because we have our practice. We're driving as safely as we can because we have skillful mindfulness and concentration. We're not on our cell phones, one hand on the wheel. Can't do that in California anymore. We've got both hands on the wheel, and we're concentrating, and we're mindful. Because we know we want to be safe. We want to keep our bodies physically safe. That's so important. We want to be spiritually and emotionally safe. We want to be psychologically safe, and as healthy as possible, so that we can fulfill our purpose in life, however we may know it as safe as possible. Sometimes there are dangerous things in life, but we want to be as safe as possible. We want to navigate our lives as safely as possible. And so we're riding along in our all-terrain vehicle with our wheels of Dharma, spinning around these eight-spoked wheels, and hopefully we have a very large smile, a big grin on our faces, because this moment is an adventure and we're having the time of our lives in the present moment. And why is this very moment the time of our lives? It's a time of our life because, by definition, the past is gone and the future is not yet here. So this moment is actually it's the time of our life. No matter what it holds, even if I'm utterly miserable, because of my practice and benefiting from my practice, I can say with complete confidence, I'm having the time of my life. This is the time that's available to me. I don't have any control over the past. It's gone. I don't know what the future will bring me. 
this has to be the time of my life, and I'm lucky enough to be here with you all right now. So actually, I am having the time of my life. Uh, or, as some people say these days, instead of I'm having the time of my life, they say, sweet. Right? Like, sweet. I'm 55, but I'm sort of trying to keep up with things. Uh, I even went on Facebook, because one of my meditation students said, you must do it. So I said, I will try. Uh, and now I'm into it. So, uh, this is one translation that was given to me by my teacher, my original teacher, Venerable Samu Sinem, uh, with whom I began to study in 1982. He was my first Dharma teacher. And he recommended that, he said, you folks are so educated. He said, you're all, you're all over-educated. You don't need to read books. But he said, every day read one page from this book, which is called the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. The Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. And there are many translations. So this is a particular translation that's done in a very fresh, uh, contemporary poetic style. And um, uh, originally, my career was as a poet. So I particularly appreciate it. And in, the, in this translation, it said that the Buddha said, to have friends in need is sweet and to share happiness. And to have done something good before leaving this life is sweet, and to let go of sorrow. To be a mother is sweet, and a father. It is sweet to live arduously. So there we've got our right effort, right? It is sweet to live arduously and to fully inhabit our lives. Oh, how sweet it is to enjoy life, living in honesty and strength. And wisdom is sweet. And freedom. So that's a lot of sweetness there. That's a lot of sweetness. Um, you know, it's all, it's all good in its own way. So it is sweet to live arduously. The way I read that says that, okay, this requires some work. It requires some effort. It requires some determination, some courage, some focus, some ability to keep with it, to stay with it. Because we know that for almost anything good we may receive in, lives, in our lives, we need a commitment. We need to make a commitment. And that's different from chaining ourselves to something that doesn't work out. And so, that, so we need to make a wise change. But it's commitment that requires effort. Commitment in a relationship, commitment to working a job and developing a career, commitment to ve developing ourselves. Maybe it can be done overnight, but usually not. So we're looking at the big view, we're looking at the long-term development of our practice in our lives. We can relax because of that, and we can also make every effort to use each moment wisely, because 
unless you're very different from me, it's just a fact that we do not know how long we have. That's just a fact. And it's easy to forget or to ignore. Which, as was said in the Dharma talk last night, when we ignore something, we are ignorant. We're ignorant because we're ignoring. We're ignoring this basic truth. And there are reasons for that, of course. It's painful and scary. can be, right? So we can forgive ourselves for ignoring it and then say, I'll just open up my reality a little bit today and just consider. I might not be here tomorrow. So how, what do I want to do right now? That's pretty basic. So we want a continuity of practice. We want to have this right effort, this diligence, in order to realize our goal, which is liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from dukkha. Dukkha, the deep, gnawing, inner sense of lack, of things not being quite good enough, or in fact, really bad, really wrong, of being lost, of being off the track. Those thoughts, if only this or that, then it would be better. I could be happy if I had more of this or less of that. In a retreat, in a workplace, in a family, you don't have to say anything. But have you ever caught yourself thinking, everything would be so much better if only that one difficult person weren't here? (laughs) Because it's really, that person is creating all the problems. They're so needy, they're so demanding. So, I mean, if we could just, like, you know, we wouldn't do anything violent to them, but if if they would just leave, our community (laughs) would would be naturally so harmonious. Because everyone else is doing their job. Or that one family member that's really messing up. Everyone else is cool. You know, that one person just has so dysfunctional, has so many problems. Uh, If they would just sort of not be part of our family, then (laughs) our family would be great. Right, so that's, you know, that's dukkha. That's dukkha, wishing things were other than they are. And thinking, well, it would be, you know, everything would be fine if... And as we grow older, hopefully we discover that uh, that's a very natural thought, actually. Uh, But it's just a thought. Because at one point or another, we ourselves may find, to our horror, that we are the difficult person. (laughs) And other people are always, okay, I'm seeing some hand signs here. Yes, yes, exactly. And you think, wow, you know. People are, are thinking, well, if only she weren't here, things would be so great. So dukkha, dukkha. Let's look at dukkha in our lives. Some years ago, when my kid was little, uh, we were taking a drive up like in the Napa area, the beautiful vineyards and everything. And the kid was just, who's not a great traveler anywhere, was just unbearable. I'm bored. When are we going to get there? Why did we have to leave home? We're going to have some lunch. 
just complaining and complaining and complaining. And so I finally said, now I realize why this is called the wine country. <laughs> because it is endless wine. It is, we're talking wine country, wine country. And so it was miserable. I, you know, you can't enjoy this beautiful landscape and beautiful vineyards because of this whining kid. If only he weren't there, I would have had such a great time. <laughs> uh, so applying this skillful effort, this wise effort to our practice is so important. And how do we know what this wise effort is in our lives? How do we know? Well, the answer is we don't always know. Like everything else, uh, there's going to be some trial and error. There's, there are going to be some mistakes, both large and small. And then the question becomes, can we learn from our mistakes? Can we grow wiser? Can we look at the mistakes and best practices of the people around us and learn from, from those too? So we don't even have to make those mistakes. We can learn from other people's mistakes and, and have gratitude for that. And also from, from what they're modeling that's so positive and helpful. Uh, those wonderful leaders in our life who really uh, lead the way and, and show us things we had never even dreamt about or, or thought about, showing us things in a new light. And sometimes we're those people. Because isn't it the fact that wisdom must grow in order to inform our most well-intentioned actions, or we could end up actually not creating the good effect that we intend, or even Sadly, the opposite. So I've been involved in diversity work and anti-racism work in the community for some time. And um, I was at an elementary school, public school in Oakland, many years ago. And we, for the kids who were in the fourth through the eighth grades, we had what we call the six-week isms program. And so we worked on racism and heterosexism and uh, all, of, all of the isms in an age-appropriate way for, for these uh, children in the public school. And we didn't have enough adult leaders of the focus groups. And so someone said, well, maybe you know a social justice activist in the spiritual community who could come and help. So I kind of put out the word and uh, this wonderful person I answered the call, volunteer, no pay, completely on their own time, and arrived at, at the school and said, I'm here to help. And we thought, phew, that's great. Okay, now we have enough adults to lead these, these groups. And, um, and, and this person, Heart of Gold, came in and told all of us, she said, the real problem is ageism. The real problem is ageism and treating these children as though they know nothing because we as adults have this adult privilege and we're so superior, we're so arrogant, we're so condescending. We can't even listen and tap into the natural wisdom of these wonderful children. Well, yeah, okay, yeah, we're open to that. These kids are pretty great. You know, if you talk to a kid, you can hear some pretty amazing things. Uh, along with everything else. It's not like they're naturally wise. <laughs> we don't need to idealize them, right? 
sometimes they say wise things, and sometimes it's trash talk or whatever else <laughs> it may be. And so she was just pointing out we shouldn't assume the kids are dumb just because they're short and, and younger, which was a, I know it was a really good point. But she was really on this, on this thing, and uh, so she went into her group with the children, and she proceeded to lecture them and say, the problem is that you are victims of ageism, and adults are always lecturing at you and telling you what to think and what to do. And she went on in this manner, and so I knew these kids because I volunteered at the school, so I was on the playground one day, and these little girls, you know, they're very empowered little girls, Come, came running up to me and they stood there with their arms akimbo like this. You know, they were about that high, but they were quite powerful. And they looked up at me and they said, my secular name is Patricia. They said, Miss Patricia, we don't like her. <laughs> so here is this wonderful person giving her time for free, giving her time to free to battle social injustice. And um, she overlooked one thing. She had all this effort, right? She put in her work, but she lacked wise effort. She lacked the wise effort of just taking the time to say, hey, how are you doing? What's happening in your life with the kids? Getting to know them, hearing their stories, finding out where their concerns are, who their teacher is, just asking a little bit about them so that they knew she really did see them as individuals and as people, that she respected them and she cared for them. So how is it that uh, with our best intentions that we are able to more and more go in the direction of wise effort, of skillful effort, that aspect of the Eightfold Path? We need to find out what works for each of us between two extremes. Two extremes. So this again is uh, the middle way. So on one hand, in terms of effort, there's tightness, there's over-striving and overwork, there's micromanagement, there's certainly burnout. And, and um, in the meditation halls that I've been in, this can manifest as what I call competitive practice. Competitive practice. And that's where, um, you know, there's, there's, there, are, there are people who are actually very wonderful deep practitioners, but they begin to look around and kind of compare without really knowing what anyone else is going through, because of course we're all silent. And then, um, you know, they're kind of competing to be the serenest, <laughs> to sit the longest, to practice the hardest, to walk the most slowly, <laughs> to eat the most slowly. And other people are doing that without being competitive. So we actually cannot know and we cannot judge. But you can know for yourself. I can know for myself when I check in with myself. Am I do, trying to do some competitive practice here? Because that's really a waste of time. I don't know what someone else is going through. I have a friend who has two discs dissolving in his back. He cannot walk slowly. So when he does a meditation retreat and everyone goes out and walks slowly around the block, he has to go out by himself and just walk very rapidly because otherwise the chronic pain really, really gets to him. He can't stand. 
he has to eat lying down. So there's really, um, it's just no use in speculating and feeling like, oh, my practice is better than theirs, or, or the other opposite is, well, their practice is better than mine. If only I could be like them, everything would be good. <laughs> we just don't know. We don't know. And that's also very natural thoughts. But just to know that we know that our effort is the best effort we can make, it's the wisest effort we can make, which we observe through seeing the impact, as far as we can see it, of our efforts on our lives and on the lives of those around us and of the environment. That will give us the feedback we need over time to tell us if our mindful and wise effort is really bearing fruit. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't, because we're always planting seeds. And those of you who are teachers know that very well. Sometimes you can think, oh, my students just haven't gotten anything. And then someone will contact you three or one or five or even 10 years down the line and say, you were so important to me, and here's what I learned from you. And you would just never have known it at the time because they weren't capable of expressing it. And it only ripened at some later point in their lives. That good thing that you did ripened. So it's nice when that feedback comes back. And sometimes we have to have faith that we've done our best. So on one hand, of too much uh, effort or unwise effort, there's this tightness, there's this striving, there's this kind of pushing. It's very aggressive in its own way, even though it can be quite well-intentioned. It's, um, it's kind of revved up. It's sort of like uh, the sort of energy after you, you drink a triple espresso and then run around and you get a lot done. But meanwhile, you might be banging doors and doing things really fast and, and maybe running over a few small beings on the floor in the meantime because you haven't stopped and, and looked at them. So it's, it's going too fast, too much force, too much speed, missing out, and then eventually burnout. So that's one hand. Okay. Then the other hand, the other extreme, is too much looseness, too much laid back, too much overindulgence. Drifting around, I mean, we say things like, you know, you hear the word spacious a lot, right? Spacious consciousness, rest in spacious awareness. And some people get so relaxed. This is California, and they get so mellowed out. And pretty soon it's not spacious, it's spaced out. They are spaced out. And you could be up in front of them, signaling nothing there. They're just blissed out. They're totally spaced out. And, uh, and they may be so spaced out that they forget to, to show up for their yogi job. And then there, other people have to cover for them and don't know what's going on. And, and you know, it's not the end of the world that does happen. But things kind of get a little bit out of, out of joint. Uh, the wheel gets to turn a little bit more bumpily instead of more smoothly. So uh, that's, that's the other extreme, a kind of a whatever. Like, oh, well, it's all practice, so... <laughs> I'm kind of a Buddha to be, so hey, I'm okay. 
I'm really sorry I didn't show up to do the dishes, but, you know, I was just, I was just resting in that spacious awareness. <laughs> so that can make you a really unpopular person. And, uh, and uh, there will be consequences to that. So, so that's, uh, that's, you know, that's, that's lack of effort. That's, that's really not uh, right diligence or effort. Uh, either because we need to uh, be responsible to our community and to the retreat. Other people are depending on us and we need to depend on ourselves. So I myself uh, come from the Korean Zen Buddhist tradition. That was my original training. And some of you have studied Zen, others of you may have read about it. Unfortunately in society today it's become kind of an adjective to describe minimalist interior decor. <laughs> so, um, so I'm really sorry about that. But I just want to tell you that it actually is a very old and vital tradition in Japan, in Korea, in China, and in Vietnam. And now in the West, in the United States, in North America, in Mexico. There are many very dedicated Zen practitioners um, doing, doing their practice. So some of you may have read some of these stories. Uh, they're really old school stories of incredible effort, incredible diligent practice. So uh, coming from my tradition, which is Korean Zen, there is a story, for instance, of a small group of monks who decided they would make their own retreat. It was like four or five monks and they decided they were just going to go for it. They were going to go for complete enlightenment and so they made a pact amongst themselves and they got this temple and meditation hall and some people were there to feed them and they said we are going to meditate and until every one of us has reached full enlightenment no one can leave and our agreement is that if anyone tries to leave because they get freaked out or tired we will kill them. <laughs> that's our agreement, so to really keep us in place. So that's, that's a story from my tradition. There's also, uh, <laughs> you know, we were reminded of that. So, and there was also Kusan Sinem, who was a wonderful teacher uh, who took in Western students at uh, Songwangsa, and it said that he practiced diligently and he was confirmed by other teachers as being ready to teach. You are an awakened uh, being, Kusan Sinem, and you can teach others. And he kind of checked in with himself and he said, nope, not good enough. So he did a retreat and he meditated sitting with a knife, pretty tall one, I guess, kind of like, an, I guess, in a little stand that was underneath his chin. And so he's sitting there, you know, the Zen people put the Zen mudra, sitting, sitting, sitting. And if he nodded off and went to sleep, then the knife would prick him, he'd wake back up again. And he continued in this manner until he himself was satisfied with his practice and he said, okay, I'm ready to teach. Uh, so that was another teaching story from my tradition. <laughs> and then, of course, we have um, Shakyamuni Buddha, our historical Buddha, represented by this beautiful figure on the altar. And we know that he developed his practice very diligently. So diligently, in fact, that he starved himself. 
He did all of these ascetic practices. I mean, he really gave it his best. He studied with many uh, teachers, famous teachers of his day, and, and he did everything very well. Uh, but he just wasn't satisfied. It, um, uh, his body was really almost ready to crumble because he treated it so badly. And he still wasn't satisfied with his, his practice. And so when he made his final vow, he chose a beautiful tree, the Bodhi tree, tree of awakening, um, uh, that has a kind of a heart-shaped leaf. And so he, made, he himself made a vow, kind of like our monk friends of the previous story. And he said, he said, I'm going to sit down now. And he had a nice bunch of grass to sit on, so that was good. So he had a little meditation cushion made out of grass, and he said, I'm, I'm, I will vow, I will not rise from this seat until I have achieved full and complete enlightenment or awakening. So that's part of our overall tradition, too, is taking that great vow and just, just going for it, 100%, 150%. And that may happen at some point in our lives. But if it does, I assure you it will happen naturally. It will be the right thing for you at that moment. And I hope that you will have wise teachers and guides to help you through the intensity of that process. For most of us, we're lay people. We have jobs, we have families, we have lots of responsibilities. There are things that we like to do just for fun. So we're going to want a way that is more gentle, that's more gradual, that can be fully integrated with our everyday lives. Full integration of wise effort and diligence into our everyday lives. I'm reading a wonderful book by Galen Ferguson, who's a teacher of color, called Natural Wakefulness. And in this book, Galen, who comes from one of our Tibetan practice traditions, says, our practice is gentle in the beginning, gentle in the middle, and gentle in the end. Our practice is the way of gentleness. The quality of skillful effort is therefore gentle. It's both gentle and strong. It contains curiosity and openness. Really looking into what is presenting itself to us in this moment. What's going on here? Am I sure about this? Trying to check our perceptions, looking deeply into the physical sensations of being in a human body. Becoming more and more aware of the breath in all of its aspects, both, both gross and subtle. Watching with ever keener attention thoughts and feelings, mental states and conditions arising, passing away, arising, changing, arising, passing away. Gentle, strong. And this kind of effort has an almost invisible, radiant, and penetrating nature. As we develop it and ripen, it has an invisible, a radiant, and a deeply penetrating nature. 
So in my tradition, we say that it's like walking in a fog. And we have a lot of fog around Bay Area, right? Uh, it's like walking in the fog. And say you're wearing a garment that has long sleeves. And so it's not raining. We don't feel we need an umbrella. We're just walking in the mist. And we walk, and we walk, and we walk, and we walk. And then at some point we notice that our sleeves are wet. That our sleeves are wet. Because that moisture in the air has, without our knowing it, little by little, penetrated and saturated the cloth. So the Dharma can be said to be like that mist, that fine rain, that fog that gently penetrates us, little by little, as we're doing our walking, as we're doing our life. And then one day we notice the sleeve is wet, the insight arises, that which we have sought and even forgot about because it's been so long is realized. We take that turning point, that moment of transformation is reached. But only through this patient, this faithful, this wise and diligent effort, this gentleness from beginning to end. So in a society that emphasizes consumerism and acquiring things, in our practice, we need to um, dissolve that. We need to give that up a little bit and instead go in the direction of becoming more simple. Not adding things on, but sometimes allowing things to drop away naturally. And being open to surprise. When we have a set idea of how things are going to be, we often are giving up on being open to the delightful, surprising realities around us. So for the past few years, I've been teaching a people of color retreat at 9,000 feet in the mountains outside of um, Taos, New Mexico at Vallecitos Mountain Refuge, which some of you have been to. It is beautiful. Alpine meadow, pristine. It's just gorgeous there. So the walking meditation is quite, it's really something. It's really something. You can walk outside on the land. And so at one uh, of these people of color retreats, there was a yogi or practitioner um, whom I'll call Sala who came, who was a devout Christian person. And she said that her intention of coming to this retreat was that she hoped to hear the voice of God. Her, pra- her Christian practice had become somewhat feeling sort of dry. And she hoped that by doing this retreat, uh, she had never done any sitting meditation or walking meditation before, that she would hear the voice of God. So it was seven days, and each day passed, and she practiced with great diligence. She was one of those folks who was so ready that it really was like a duck entering water. I could not believe it. She was sitting right to my right, and she entered into a state of concentration. I think it was kind of hard for her body, but 
she found a position that was stable and comfortable enough. She practiced sincerely. She practiced honestly. She really put her whole heart into it. And then at the end of the retreat, we had a sharing circle. And she said, you know, I always thought that it would be like in the movies and that I'd hear a booming voice that came down from out of the sky that said, Hello, Salah. (laughs) This is God. And then the wonderful thing would occur, right? And that didn't happen. So she was sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. Very beautiful practice. Very beautiful practice. And she said she was out walking in the meadow, doing her walking meditation near the end of the retreat. Her mind had become clarified and simple. And in one moment, she heard a bird sing. And she said, I knew that God had spoken to me. I have achieved what I came here for. I am so happy. God spoke to me. So she could hear the voice of God because she was open to hearing something in a new way. It wasn't what she'd expected. It wasn't what she'd expected. So our lives are inherently creative. They're surprising. There are amazing and miraculous things going on all around us and within us. Are we open? Are we open to it in this moment? Through our diligent practice and our wise effort, it will come to us. So we need some courage to do this practice. We need some way to encourage ourselves. Encourage contains the word courage and others. (laughs) We need to learn to become our own best friend, our own support team, our personal coach. And if we get encouragement from others and from our teachers, great. Frosting on the cake. Because we know as we continue to practice with wise effort how we can be our own best encouragement. Skillful effort often looks effortless. It's changing that 800th diaper with the same loving attention that we changed the first one when the baby was new and cute and didn't say rude things to us. (laughs) It's washing that dish for the thousandth time. It's sweeping that floor for how knows how many times. It's saying, I love you and I care for you to those around us again and again without grasping onto a goal or an idea that there will be some point we reach where it will be all settled and we can kick back and turn on the TV and say, okay, I've done it. And now I don't have to put any effort into my practice anymore because it's a process. 
Those dishes we washed may be dirty tomorrow. The diaper we changed may need to be surely changed again before tomorrow. The floor may need to be swept. And sometimes it's good to say I love you, even if the person we love hasn't asked for it. That's all right effort. It has a gentle and penetrating warmth. So our inner confidence and spiritual strength is well established, is firmly rooted through continuous, skillful effort and right diligence. And this produces a kind of alignment and harmony in our lives. When that occurs, what we might call renunciation happens effortlessly, not as an act of forced will, but because it is simply the logical byproduct of our process of practice. It's not that we have to will and force ourselves. I'm going to give this up. I'm not going to do that. It simply happens in our lives as everything else begins to fall into alignment and harmonize. We become less harmful. We become kinder to ourselves and to others. We know from our mistakes how unwise speech can hurt because we know how it's hurt us and others. We know how livelihood that is not good for the earth and for people can take our, our best efforts and our time and our energy and what do we have to show for it? The paycheck that's gone. And sometimes we do have to work jobs that we don't believe in to survive, but overall, over the trajectory of our lives, what are our efforts adding up to? So I'm reaching the end of my time, and I want to say that the last aspect I want to talk about in terms of diligent effort, skillful effort, right effort, is to say, we give it our all. We give it our all. We give our practice our all. And we do it with the attitude and the value of goallessness of wishlessness, of actually letting go of achieving anything at all. My own teacher used to say, there's nothing good about doing good. In fact, he used to yell it. We'd be working away in the temple and he'd come out from his room and he'd yell, there's nothing good about doing good. And then he'd go back into his room and shut the door. <laughs> I think, okay. But it was a good reminder, because if we get attached to our goodness, even in a very subtle way, we might become quite resentful when no one else sees how good we are. <laughs> so, to end in this moment, can you touch the goodness of your heart? Whether you can or cannot, I know, I know for a fact, that goodness of heart is there. That aliveness, that freshness. Where else would it be? So have faith 
be patient. The Buddha said work with care and attention. And we could also say walk with care and attention or sit with care and attention. Because through this practice, you may gain miraculous healing powers and magical knowledge of things that are hidden to ordinary people. And then again, perhaps you'll find what it is to feel fully alive, fully joyful, to be wise and honest, to be well-liked and respected in your community as an ordinary person, and to die surrounded and helped by good and wise people whom we know we can count on in hard times. Diligent effort and letting go. Diligent effort and letting go. These are two movements that are one movement. Inhale and exhale. Diligent effort and letting go. Expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. That's the great heart of the universe beating. Can you hear it? Listen. Listen. Thank you very much for your kind attention, and please enjoy walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.